0: We now have this. What what the multi omics world has done is it's always been around. Yeah. But we've now given it a name and and a and a a convert in a common language. Because here's what's really cool is when you look at the kind of great grandmother of modern medicine today. That's Ayurveda, which is a over 5,000 year old medicine. They called epigenetics something called Vikruti versus Prakruti, which is basically that of which you are born, like basically your blueprint that you're born with. And then the other one is how you live your life to how that other blueprint expresses. Does that sound familiar?
1: Yeah, epigenetics. (laughs) Genetics is obviously your genetic code you got from mom and dad. Epigenetics is the expression, it's above genetics. So it is actually your genetic code adapting to your environment. And don't think your environment's just out here. It could be your thought as exactly. you were touching on.
0: Yeah, and so, Ayurveda, we've actually had the understanding of multiomics all the way back then. And in, in Chinese medicine, they call it your constitution, hmm. you know, or their, your um, like your organ system, like your, are you a liver gallbladder pattern? Are you a pericardium heart pattern? Same type of idea that this is, how is your environment impacting the expression of disease or health?
1: Welcome to the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. I'm the medical director at Brio Medical in Scottsdale, Arizona. I am both a conventionally trained and licensed medical doctor as well as a licensed medical homeopathic doctor. This podcast is your resource for a scientific-based discussion of all things cancer and beyond from a natural, holistic, and integrative perspective. It's time to teach the body how to heal. So here we go. from cancer survivor to cancer doctor to cancer healer welcome back to the special series with dr nasha winners dr nasha it is truly an honor to have you again on the podcast and uh, i love having your fur babies here and they just uh, they just have welcomed us as have you and steve Thank welcome you. us to your beautiful You can see backyard, which that's why we wanted to set this shot up is to give you a perspective of the healing environment that you've really set up for yourself to continue this healing process. Because in the first podcast, you set the stage. Yeah, You set the stage of your experience as a patient, as a cancer survivor, doctor, and then healer, though we didn't get a chance to touch on that a lot. But now it's what was the purpose out of that? Mm -hmm. And so the purpose appears to be, in part, Mm -hmm. to tell a story to promote a change. Yeah. uh, 2017 book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. When did you get the inclination Mm -hmm. to write a book? So
0: my husband and i uh my partner in crime and all of this over these years in 2009 we decided to host because we had so many patients that were coming out of the woodwork um, that had a lot of things going on in their lives and their terrains and their households in their support systems or lack thereof that seemed, and then everyone also kept hearing rumors, like, how do you eat so well? And how do you get inspiration? Well, you know, you have now gotten to experience it. My husband is just a brilliant cook. He has been since he was a little boy. And so people were like, well, I don't know how to do it. You're just lucky that you have this person. And, you know, again, everyone's sort of like, I can't do this for myself like you did it. And so we're like, well, let's show you how to do it. So we started in 2009 hosting retreats facilitating retreats to take people out of their environment, put them in a new one from a Friday afternoon until a Monday morning. Before that retreat, we'd run their labs and the week after the retreat, we'd run them again and we would show how much you could actually change in a very short period of time. There's the data, yeah. but then there's also the community. right? And so it was just this amazing moment of bringing people together and showing them the way through deep education, through deep connection, through good food, good conversation, good inspiration, storytelling, collecting of stories. We even have what we call the hot seat. There was always someone who'd be willing to let me do the entire process in real time in front of the group to go through their entire intake process, their labs, their SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, and go through it and basically teach the others, like, this is what I'm looking at. You can do this for yourself as I'm doing for this person. What part of what you're hearing about them relates to you? What part is different for you? It also helped people really understand that, hey, we might have five people here with the same diagnoses, but they all have a very different reason for why they landed there. I've, I've
1: read that you've said that. Yes, yes. It's a great quote.
0: It is so, so much. And so what happened is those would be extreme deep dives to the point where after many years and that expanding beyond women in cancer to people with cancer, to people and caregivers with, um, with cancer, to people with caregivers and, and uh, medical professionals you know, in the cancer space, it blossomed into something. And our last one was up to February, 2016. And so what was happening at that time is people kept saying, this is like drinking water out of a fire hydrant. I wish you would take all of this content because I would give them like a 250 page, like workbook.
1: you kind of had your book already written, Exactly.
0: (laughs) For putting those retreats together. And so they're like, take And so this is like the fleshed out version of the retreat. And that is what made made its way into birthing this book out into the world where you know i joked last time we talked about i thought my mom and a couple patients would read it and it's shocked all of us that it's gone much much bigger than that and and even created basically a platform and a stage to reach more people right you know we talked about that earlier too that one to one is very difficult one to 20 is better one to a thousand is better one to a hundred thousand or a million is where i want this to go yeah yeah
1: because you connect with people through these words. Yeah. And it's those words and your experiences that allow these words to come to fruition that is allowing it to bear fruit actually in people's lives. Yeah. But it's through the work that you're doing now that actually you've stepped kind of out of private practice yeah. to take that exponential step. Yeah. And so this this book mm-hmm. basically Am, am I correct here in saying this yeah. book was kind of the bridge from clinical to expanding Fully. the clinical mind of other doctors? 100%. And, you know,
0: even our publisher, Chelsea Green Publishing, was having a hard time like, who's your audience? And we're like, we don't know. Like, We're, we're going to find out together. Right. And so it's funny that I'll hear from people that I run into out in the wild saying, you know, this is pretty technical. I had to read through it pretty a couple times to really get it. And then I'll have medical providers say, um, it was so well referenced, and I really appreciate the science behind it. We tried to really speak to everybody. We wanted everybody to come to the same table. And if it was too heady, you didn't have to get the 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 details. You needed the big picture so that the book offers that. And then people who want the details or want the references. There's over two, three hundred references at the back of this book. and um, ever since there's even more, because the information in this book has expanded exponentially in the past you know, six, seven years. But ultimately, it became a guide. It became a reference book and when i get so proud when i run into a colleague um, or someone in the medical profession who says this is a required reading for all of my patients that brings me such joy or this is what i hand or a patient says to me this is the book i handed to my oncologist when i said this is what i'm doing along with what you're offering and they read it and guess what those people end up in our training program or whatnot or i run into them at a conference later or they send me a message like wow this was more than I expected, or I didn't quite understand what I was gonna get when I dove into this. So it's exciting to me that it's an opportunity to create a new conversation and to bring everybody to the table.
1: As I said in the first podcast, and I encourage you to check that out if you didn't uh, check it out. And by the way, you can get this book on Amazon or probably- Barnes and
0: Noble, the Chelsea Green Publishing. There you go. All the places.
1: And then she's also got a more recent book, Mistletoe and the Emerging Future of Integrative Oncology. Uh, co-authored this with Steven Johnson, great physician. Yes, um, amazing. When did this publish?
0: This published in uh, November 2021 from okay. Steiner Books. Okay. Um, and so an interesting thing about that book, that also birthed from a training program. So for years, I was the only clinician in the United States training other clinicians on how to use mistletoe in the US. And um, that was uh, challenging, to put it mildly, of people willing to like, the, the thing I kept getting and this is important for your listeners to hear everyone was afraid to have this conversation like I can't apply this in practice I'll lose my license this isn't something I can do this is a therapy that has been studied as over 2600 publications over 250 of them that our US standards would consider are really good publications and even had a, a just recently um February 2023 a clinical trial phase one of safety despite the fact it's been used safely since 1917, yeah. um, coming out, and that people were still terrified, like no matter, they saw the literature, they saw the backup, they saw the information, and they were still petrified to apply it. And so it was really amazing to break into that place. But here's the other side, I feel like I can say this in this group, the anthroposophical medical doctors, all MDs, mm-hmm. did not want a naturopath sharing this information. So I was outed, by that community
1: wow. until
0: somebody like a Steven Johnson said, wait a minute, come on. We got to preserve this, we got to share this. No one else has you know, big enough ovaries to get out there and just do this. <laughs> and so um, suddenly he and I got to meet and suddenly, really so. like,
1: no. ovaries <laughs> dropped. <laughs> Boom,
0: what was my so, drop. Exactly. Oh, no, that was an ovary.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: And what is so cool is Steven gave me a chance And he he came and was like, I've got an idea, let's do classes like as a collective, let's bring together the naturopathic community, the functional medicine community, the anthroposophical community, and let's actually teach a course really focused in this to bring us all together. So these seven authors, myself included, are the faculty of that course, and this book is the fleshing out of that course. So you got to, that's where we met, was at that course.
1: And it was a beautiful uh, blend, it really was because You had MD and naturopathic physician up there. And
0: hematological
1: oncologist. But it it was beautiful because everybody was speaking the data. Everybody was speaking the science. And you know, that's really interesting. And we'll get into some of the chapters of the book. I I want you to read this because it it, it still has immense relevance to today. And in fact, I would say it's not lost any of its relevance. And I would just only say that science has just further validated the points of Thank it, it's you. not like they've added much new, yeah. but it's its just further validated the mm-hmm. concept that cancer is a metabolic disease. Yeah. It's not a one hit you know, phenomenon, a two hit phenomenon, somatic mutation, the cards were dealt mm. at all. But the examples that you were mentioning there of doctors not wanting to get into mistletoe was they were protecting their turf. Mm-hmm. And then and initially- their, And their licenses. Yeah, and then initially with yeah. the anthroposophic yeah. MDs, they were doing the same.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it goes on
1: both, I'm getting it from every direction. So I wonder how much innovation and elevation of the practice of medicine, the art of medicine, the science of medicine has been delayed Mm. because of doctors not working together. Wow. It's huge. Because we're not short on patients, are we? No, unfortunately. There is unfortunately no competition in this field. Yeah, and so... If you are a doctor, or if you have a doctor, let them know that this is about the patients.
0: Yeah.
1: Doctors yeah. need to come together. Doctors need to work to get together. Doctors need to communicate together, yeah. for the benefit of the patients. Yeah. So, um, and and you've done that, and you stood up when nobody would. So, yeah, I'm just gonna stop there because I'm about <laughs> to do another ovary drop. So. Not going to go there. I, I, am by, I am by definition, you know, I am a gynecologist. So, so there
0: you go. We can
1: use this languaging. There you go. <laughs> we are being true to our exactly. origin. That's hilarious. You use a word over and over, over again in everything you say, but then in chapter two of this book, you really touch on it. And so I want to use a quote that you have in here that I think really will set the stage for it. A seed sprouts depending on whether it has been thrown into fertile ground or sand, and the same goes for a soul's desire. Mm. For the seeds to sprout and grow, they need a healthy, fertile land without unnecessary ballast, which on the level of the mind are the outlived patterns, fears and limitations we have taken upon ourselves as our own. Seeds, seeds. soil, yeah, terrain. yeah. So you use that word a lot, terrain. What does that mean?
0: So I, I mean, first I think that quote does a pretty darn good job because it, yeah. I think people like could see the metaphor. At least I hope people. I hope the metaphor is not lost on folks. But really, I look at us that we are an ecosystem, right? With like we're a, um, like a, we're in this flesh suit and uh, have an ecosystem inside and on top of that that also interacts with everything inside that meat suit, but also with yours and the environment around us. And we're starting to learn that, I mean, I love the studies when they talk about the microbiome, that your microbiome is much closer to your dog or your cat than it is to say your neighbor, because you're living and sharing in the same environment. So even if you're a different species, your microbiome start to have an overlay, Mm -hmm. uh, which also speaks volumes, which we'll probably come to at another moment here. But terrain is all about this ecosystem within and it's 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 taking in of information be it through light food water you know communication relationship you know rhythm circadian rhythm balance exercise it's interacting it's taking in all that sensory input it's translating it and it's sending other signals out to other parts of the body to do its jobs and in a perfect world if we all had access to really clean water really clean air really good nourishment we didn't have to want for our basic needs to be met we didn't have to live in a place of of trauma and abuse and neglect we didn't have to just be in a place of survival mode. We uh, knew where our next meal was going to come from. We had someone who was there to love us with all their heart and soul and allow us to be fully who we are. You know, we have connection to our creator. We have, you know, access to self-resourcing and communal resourcing. We'd be out of jobs, yeah. right? And these are the essential determinants that we're taught in naturopathic school, you know, not just our, our own biology, but also the geography. And its role in how we heal or
1: Where prevent. We exactly. Where we are right now.
0: Exactly. This is part of my medicine. We're sitting in my medicine room.
1: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I can think of worse. I know. Worse, worse places to exactly. sit. So, exactly. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And, you know, a lot of that is 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 what we are talking about. But the interesting thing is a lot has changed since the um, industrial revolution. Yeah. A lot has changed. So we have, I'd like to just quickly give this story for people to understand terrain from a very broad scope level is for tens of thousands of years, if not hundreds of thousands of years, depending on who you talk to in the sciences, we were hunter-gatherers. We were nomadic. We moved around based on the resources of the environment. We evolved from that and our genetics evolved from that about 10,000 years ago, we actually decided this seems like a good time to set down some roots and stay a little more put. And that was known as the Neolithic farming age or the Neolithic agricultural age, the inception of that. And that happened along what's known as the Fertile Crescent, which is basically the Mediterranean Mm -hmm. is where that took root. But at that time that that took root, there was also this really interesting thing that happened at the same time, which was a new gene expression came through, which was the HLA gene, the human leukocyte antigen gene, mm-hmm. which suddenly took something that never existed before and showed up that made us much more vulnerable to certain stressors in our environment, maybe from food or from infections or different things that that changed the game a little bit, added a little bit of sort of hormesis into the system, a little bit of stress that could provoke, because there's also positive things that came out of that HLA oh, sure. gene, right? Absolutely. Of resilience yeah. and whatnot. And then over time, that was like our biggest change, right? So 10,000 years ago, it was like a huge change. We've been going along for a long time till that happened. It wasn't until about 1850 that the next big change came. So isn't that amazing that we really subsisted quite well on these two kind of paradigms for hunter-gatherer to Neolithic farmer, until the industrial revolution, when we started to be able to really set down roots, to really start to grow things in mass production, to start to um, uh, like create sugar, salt, flour, in ways that we never did before and put it and make things more available all the time st- instead of seasonal, local, regional. Then the inventions of things like refrigeration and transportation, you know, started to change things that our access to these things. Now we celebrate that of the absolute brilliance and innovations mm-hmm. of humanity. And yet none of us could have anticipated, actually, I take that back, some of us did anticipate. Weston Westin A. Price, um, you know, Pot, Dr. Pottinger, these were people of the time calling, sounding the alarm that we were starting to cause harm in these new ways of making our lives easier on the planet.
1: So what, you, what you're saying is that as we moved from hunter-gatherers to Neolithic farmers, that we became stale yeah interesting well that's it right because I mean, we like we exactly, we're
0: like let's just become a little yeah. more like entropy took over you know like yeah, I mean, yeah. that's
1: that's what that kept coming in my mind as you were talking about it. we become stale we become moldy we get yeah I, I, just a thought that came to my mind but Statinous. then now where are we going yeah uh let's see know. chicken from plastic uh so you mean meat in a factory oh yeah yeah so that's 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 local right yeah your factory is the local. Sure, it's crazy, yeah. but I, I, when I first read the book, and I've read almost all of it, yeah. is that I thought, well, terrain, you're just renaming the environment, but I get why you do that, because environment, people think outside. Yeah. Terrain can provide a co- proper context to the environment inside. inside. Everybody thinks about the toxins out there, yeah. rightly so they forget about the toxin they put in here or that goes through here, here. that's a good point. Mm. That's a good point, that's a good point, wow.
0: And then how those two interact, the outside environment interacts with your inside environment, that's another level of complexity that's very, that is, we are trying to, and we had this conversation last night on our walk about evolution, yeah. Now, for some people, that is a difficult idea or concept, and yet, you know, I, I it's just we can watch that naturally in nature. Over time, things change yeah. in response to their environment. That is evolution,
1: right? Yeah. Microevolution. Exactly. And if you look, you know, I was reading over some data this morning that, you know, 41.9% of the adult U.S. population is obese. Gosh, okay? wow. That has not always been the case. No. Nope. That is microevolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is people and their metabolisms adapting to Twinkies, ding-dongs. Or not adapting, we should say. That's
0: correct. Because that's 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 really...
1: They're they're adapting to the lack of nutrition or not adapting well, and that's the physical manifestation of it.
0: And here in the concept of like, where does terrain come? Because this is sort of an esoteric term for people, right? but people like that started doing especially in my early diagnosis the types of work i was stumbling across was the work of people like Candace Pert and Bruce Lipton well before Bruce Lipton became a household name and well before his book came out in to in the in like 2011 i was reading his research from the 1980s and 1990s about how our beliefs change our epigenetic expression so the biology of belief. The, he was a microbiologist who was noting that simply the medium in which, you know, the the, the context of someone's thought process or belief systems actually changed the outcomes. And then people like candace pert same thing the full-on physicist scientist behind biologies of belief and ideologies and their impact on your immune system and your response and your resilience and your hormetic response and adaptations to things and then people like mina bissell who's actually presented it i mean she's been writing just multiple publications at this point probably in the hundreds which is work i've started to stumble across which is her description of terrain is that of the extracellular matrix. That is what Ooh, the term is yeah. in the science world. We now also have a newer word that's evolved since this time of the tumor micro environment. Right. right? And so what you, what you start to say is like, it doesn't matter what the name is, what, how you want to label it. People are starting to recognize that the tumor and the tumor cell are not the issue. It's what they're landing in. Mm-hmm. It's the petri dish that they're landing in, the petri dish of us that they're landing in that gives them power or keeps them suppressed in yeah, their expression.
1: The parable of the sower in the Bible talks about that. It's the soil mm. that the seed, Like you can throw the same seed, but the soil yeah. will dictate whether it grows and sprouts and bears fruit yes, yeah. or whether it dies.
0: Yeah, oof.
1: Multiomics. <laughs> okay, this is- Very cool. Is we're going to get our geek on. Multiomics is the future of medicine. That's today. It's yeah. present today. Yeah. It is really, I think, the pivot point in history from the one size fits all approach yeah. to precision, individualized medicine. So, it. you, I mean, yeah, 2017. I know. Multiomics was not a household name. Now no. you may go I, in my house. I've never heard of it. <laughs> in in a medical lot of the world, scientific community, yeah. it now is a household yeah. name, a yeah. word. Yeah. But yet you touched on this in 2017.
0: And actually before that, I was teaching classes in my community at the library in my town in 2011.
1: You are an overachiever. Yeah. A little
0: bit. I mean, just oh, My OCD gene comes in very handy.
1: Okay. <laughs> Yeah. I am going to slither off into <laughs> the oblivion. Yeah, it.
0: Well, and it's interesting because I would love to, you know, because we now have this. What what the multi omics world has done is it's always been around. Yeah. But we've now given it a name and 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 a, and a convert in a common language. Because here's what's really cool is when you look at the kind of great grandmother of modern medicine today. That's Ayurveda, which is a over five thousand year old medicine. They called epigenetics something called Vikruti versus which is basically that of which you are born, like basically your blueprint that you're born with. And then the other one is how you live your life to how that other blueprint expresses. Does that sound familiar?
1: Yeah, epigenetics. (laughs) Genetics is obviously your genetic code you got from mom and dad. Epigenetics is the expression, it's above genetics. So it is actually your genetic code adapting to your environment. And don't think your environment's just out here. It could be your thought as exactly. you were touching on. Yeah,
0: and so, Ayurveda, we've actually had the understanding of multiomics all the way back then. And in, in Chinese medicine, they call it your constitution, hmm. you know, or your um, like your organ system, like your, are you a liver gallbladder pattern? Are you a pericardium heart pattern? Same type of idea that this is how is your environment impacting the expression of disease or health? you know and so there was that piece in homeopathy we call it miasms yeah which are basically generational tendencies yeah so it's so funny that actually we have in all the vitalistic medical practices always had an understanding of this and yet it got after good old descartes sort of cut us off and separated things out and siloed things we've been clawing our way back to some of these concepts and the multi-omics boom has given us an opportunity to usher in the old language with the new and find a common ground that allows us to really understand the body as a, as this beautiful beautiful ecosystem and its interaction with everything around it
1: yeah and just uh... The multi-omics is the collective umbrella that includes things like genomics, epigenomics, transcriptomics, proteomics, yeah. immunomodulomics, microbiomics. <laughs> I say whatever omics, yeah, yeah, exactly. you know, that's coming. <laughs> yep. Um, but <laughs> totally. it, it, it's just these areas of study that are really putting into practice these ideas that this is a functional model that is our body that is working in a dynamic yeah. way. Yeah. But, you know, I was talking to Steve this morning over coffee and the topic we were having was that, you know, these ancient cultures, you talked about ayurvedic medicine. Yeah, yeah. That actually, by the way, is traditional medicine. Right. Today is Why not. Do call,
0: that's, such a, that's a confusing one for me. That's right. Yeah.
1: That is tradition. Very. They did so much with so little.
0: And they, they're who that's what surgery came from. Yeah. That's where pharma, pharma, pharmacy came from. They were the original pharmacists, the original alchemists, they were the original surgeons, they were the original acupuncturists. Marmotherapy is what led to um acupuncture down the road. Like all of these things, and yet we are like, oh, they don't matter. Scooch them off the table and move forward. Now, only now.
1: Is traditional. Yeah. It's conventional. Yeah. It's just not traditional. But yeah. what I would say is, we were talking about this again this morning. I said, you know, we have so much information, yet I'm I'm concerned that history is going to look back on us and say, we did so little with it. I, mm, well, that you're
0: okay. You just spoke to something. We have so much information. We've had this information for at least, at least, fifteen years, by my by my accounts. By the time I became expert enough to feel like I could talk about it at a library to our locals, um, I'd already been studying it in t- intensely with my crazy biochemist, brilliant husband, for at least three or four years before that. Um, you know, teaching clinicians of how to make this clinically actionable and so we have this information we now have the ways that we can even test somebody's tumor yeah. or test somebody's something in circulation I mean remember back in 2011 2012 I was talking about cancer stem cells and everyone was said I was absolutely bonkers that that didn't exist and I was yet going but I'm reading the research of i can't believe his name just left my brain right now because i quoted him so often but he was um, in chicago another one in indiana all these guys were talking about the stem cells and no one was like nope that doesn't exist well now we literally can test people's circulating tumor cells that are these you know that are telling us information about the personality of the actual expression of the tumor yeah. which that's like so again this is all these cool tools we have today but no one's really using them
1: yeah but a lot of these tests will actually come out of conventional medicine too yeah, that's what's that's interesting what, yeah and and they don't use it but the integrative movement picks them up yeah and then they make their way back to the conventional exactly. world and and it's great that they pick it up yeah but anyways we we can just but go down we that. both wouldn't
0: it be great if we all were at the table together and said, hey, look at how we could use this information in a really different way. Like, what are we gonna do with this? Because I'll say, how many patients do you have that come in with their tissue assay from a highfalutin academic institution that are having recalcitrant cancers that are not responding to the typical standard of care, and yet no one's using the data in front of them to say, well, actually the reason why you're not responding is because you have this and this and this marker, but no one's treating those with therapies that they're telling you would work better here because it's not standard of care.
1: And then you'll see that they'll not have immune checkpoints that are there and they're still trying to use them. Yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, so yeah. who's
0: yeah. Un- yeah. evidence-based here? Yeah, exactly. And that's <laughs> just As we can sit there and say, do you have this target that this drug would be a utility for? And then do you have the pharmacogenomics that see how toxic that drug will be for you or not, that we can then support to make you l- it less toxic for you?
1: So your next nightmare will be omics. I promise you that, no. <laughs> so when people look at cancer, mm-hmm they can look at it from a causation perspective and say, yeah, "Yeah, you know, eating those Twinkies and 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 doing all that bad eating I was doing probably wasn't very good and contributed to my diet. But when they talk about cancer treatment, the idea that diet nutrition plays any role is lost. So sugar, ketogenic diet and cancer. Mm. Is there any connection there? (laughs)
0: Well, many would there say, is. nope, um, which is really strange. And and I, I like, you and I were talking about this also last night, that it's not that we could easily ever say, sugar causes cancer. That's not at all what we're saying. No. So I want to be really yeah. clear on that. But it certainly contributes to the, the progression of, or in other things, because it's not just about sugar. Sugar itself uh, stunts the immune function. Mm-hmm. It stimulates inflammation. Uh, you know like those are just some things it can be an it can create endocrine disruption oh, so cause some hormonal changes it can also be a, a a switch on and off of certain epigenetic expressions those are just to name a few right. it definitely clogs up the works of our mitochondrial energy production chain oh, met- metabolism metabolism metabolomics That's right. um, so it can definitely do that so it's an it's another lever we can pull to support a patient through this process. And then interesting, like we've learned things like, yes, PET scans, what is it looking for? It's looking for the uptake of glucose into the cancer cells. And yet then at the same breath we say, yep, this is important to do this scan. And then nope, sugar has nothing to do with it. How do you not make that connection? I
1: actually had a patient tell me that. She said, well, I've introduced a ketogenic diet into my my plan of attack to help what you're doing." And she said the oncologist was sitting there writing something, he said, that has nothing to do with this, this won't help. She said, what are you writing? She, he said, well, I'm, I'm writing prescription for a oh. PET CT scan. She said, isn't that giving me radioisotope sugar? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. moving on. Yeah, exactly, next.
0: <laughs> exactly, and so, but that piece, but even things like we know, for instance, radiation. Radiation is uh, a really powerful, tool oh yeah it can be harnessed actually in certain ways like fractionated low dose waste can actually be harnessed as a hormetic as an immune modulator when it's done in a very different way however the flip side of that is if a patient has elevated glucose insulin levels it desensitizes the cancer cell to the radiation and makes for more potential for mutagenicity for things to to morph even more and so how is it not that we have enough evidence to say You know what, if you have your patients in a carbohydrate-restricted state, even if they just come in for their radiation treatment in that moment, they potentiate that treatment, they lower the toxicity to the healthy cells, and they actually bring in, it's like that fasted state or that state of ketosis actually acts like a Trojan horse to drive the radiation and sensitize those cancer cells to the radiation.
1: But they actually have research that shows that fasting augments radiation yeah it augments chemotherapy yeah. yeah. I and mean, there's so many places that we could go with that yeah. but tons but clearly you know a ketogenic diet and I think a lot of people would think about the Atkins diet yeah oh gosh yeah. <laughs> (laughs)
0: I call that dirty keto, or that's not what we're not
1: what we're talking about.
0: And actually, this is a really good opportunity to to, you know, because people think about ketogenic diet. There is such thing as a ketogenic diet, which was born from the 1920s from Hopkins Mm -hmm. when it was utilized as a treatment of a particular four-to-one ratio treatment of four fats, you know, like four times the amount of fat to create ketone bodies in the brains of pediatric kids with with severe epilepsy. This is before the pharmaceuticals came to be. It was super effective until things like Depakote came onto the market in the 1940s, got it shut down. But guess what? It works better than those drugs. And yet people are like, but but once we had the drugs, this is the the mindset of the doctors. It's too hard to do this to our patients. Well, talk to a parent or a kid who's got that going on before 1920. It was not too hard. You did what you had to do to survive to thrive. And so suddenly you have a drug that's like, Oh, forget about it. It's too hard like placate it and move on. This is what we do up until the seventies. We were routinely fasting patients in the cancer space because they did better. They had less side effects. They, they recovered quicker. And actually thank God for people like Dr. Longo who brought that work yeah. back out, dusted it off and said, let's do some deeper dives into this. But again, somebody else made the decision for the patient, oh, this is going to be too hard for them. We don't want them to suffer any more than they're already suffering. So instead, we're going to change the narrative to no matter what, don't lose weight. Here's a little book of American Cancer Society recommendations of what to eat to keep your weight up. You look at those that list, you guys, it is horrifying. It is all sugar on sugar on sugar and processed sugar to boot. And it's like, wow, we have turned, we have gone so rogue here. So ketogenic diet is one way to achieve a state of physiologic ketosis. Right high fat low low uh, sugar that's one way but you can also get into ketosis in just carbohydrate restriction you can also get into ketosis with fasting yeah. even intermittent fasting even long-term fasting short-term you can get into ketosis as a carnivore you can get into ketosis as a vegetarian as a vegan harder as a vegan I will say you can also get into ketosis with exogenous ketones yeah so there's many roads to Rome and what they've found is that when you look at the hallmarks of cancer which we're now up to what 16 you know went from six just 11 to 14 yeah and it was just building and each time we felt like develop those those uh hallmarks we're like oh here's the answer this is camp but no one has ever said but why are the hallmarks expressing
1: well they have reprogramming in there
0: right but they're like but we're just going to skim over that because there's no pharmaceutical for that
1: but there's over 1700 PubMed references as of this morning wow i think it's 1739 so if so let's get into the microbiome, because if cancer is reprogramming its environment, mm-hmm. can we not reprogram it? Yes. And what about this environment that is the microbiome? How does it play mm-hmm. a role in this process, do you think?
0: Well, I love that you start out with like reprogramming. Like, first of all, what was the programming to begin with before cancer took root? Mm-hmm because it's always there. So what made it kind of go, hi, I'm here, right? And so you know, for some, they're born with it. They're already born with reprogramming, or they're already in vitro with programming because of just the nature of the accumulations of even previous generations yeah. that are passed through, right? So there's that. So you talk about that, this reprogramming that says there's this metabolic shift that then cancer gets on the move. But to your point, it's it's bidirectional. Yeah. So what can we then... How, what types of tools can we use to reprogram it back to, or even maybe for the very first time, to a state of, horror, of, of, you know, of um, uh, home, homeostasis right. that brings it back into that? And so that is such a beautiful concept of hope, right? Because there are still people out there, no names to be shared, in big major institutions that are on one end of the hallway of a major institution, saying that cancer is nothing but bad luck. Playing Russian roulette, and there's nothing you can do about it. You're just a sitting duck. And literally, at the other end of the hallway or the other end of the campus in the same prestigious to be named institution, are people saying, Nope, this is a metabolic disease that is based on mitochondrial function, that is when cancer reprogram. you know, the, the environment gets reprogrammed to make cancer active and we can do something about it and where all this amazing research and the metabolic approach to cancer is taking place so we can't even agree in our own medical institutions as to what this is about
1: and they probably can't have a discussion about it either. oh
0: heck no especially not and so to the point of even the microbiome when this book came out in 2017 everyone was literally and i'm going to use that word you know very specifically poo-pooing the idea of the microbiome (laughs) that it doesn't exist it's not a good well it's like this is where Researchers that have been at their game for 20, 30 years were finally coming in and getting Nobel Prizes on things like autophagy, things like circadian rhythm biology, things like, which was part of the reprogramming, things like checkpoint inhibition and things like um, uh, microbiome and its its ability to make a drug work better or not work better or to dismantle the drug's utility. Suddenly, it's a game changer and guess what this goes back over 5000 years when those crazy Ayurvedic doctors and then later Chinese medicine and later naturopaths and later um, osteopaths and later homeopaths and like all the things but it's about the gut I mean Hippocrates was like all disease starts in the gut and then to go even beyond we know now microbiome is not just in that tube that we happen to be wrapped around
1: it's in the tumor in yes. the tumor. So, you know, I've not been able to find any evidence. I've seen some theories. I'd love to get yeah, your take yeah. on it here on camera. So I didn't let you know this ahead of time, but oh. I'm just curious, cause you brought it up. So the gut microbiome, it's the gut bacteria, and there's a lot of different populations there, family species, et cetera. And we know there's a tumor microbiome yeah. and we know that there's particular bacteria within particular histological types yeah. of cancer. Yeah. Is there communication mm. between the gut microbiome by the tumor microbiome, and might that be some impact of the immunologic dysfunction we see in cancer? Just, mm-hmm. just a theory I have, and I just, I just love to get your take on it.
0: Well, it's funny because to me that just seems common sense, it, it and it seems sense. very intuitive, right? And so I'm not, I'm not sure if there's actual definitive studies. They probably are happening, okay? But well, let me give you an example. Actually, there is a definitive study that we're looking at doing. We are collecting the poop from newly diet. This is one of the projects we have coming up. We are collecting the poop from newly diagnosed people with glioblastoma. We are sending it off to a lab to be evaluated for all the things, microbiome specifically, and you know things like checkpoint inhibitors and oh, yeah. you know, targets of it. And then we're putting those patients onto a therapeutic ketogenic diet. And we're checking in, we're collecting their poop monthly for three months to see what changes in the tumor microbiome. Oh. And again, this is in this is a food right. that we're seeing changes in tumor expression. That is either removed, already removed from the body, but you can't typically remove entirely a glioblastoma. Most of the time, there's residual right. disease. So, how is it that this diet could have an impact on something happening in the brain? And there is that place that, it, well, of course, I think there has to be some cross communication. This is what I think is so beautiful to me is that, I mean, that's even like just getting down to the nitty gritty of the mitochondria. The mitochondria are these brilliant antennas and receivers of information. They're taking in all the noise, they're taking it all in, translating it, and then they're sending signaling out into the whole system. And they're talking, they're cross talk everywhere. And they're talking because remember micro or the mitochondria are bacteria, Mm -hmm. we evolved from that. So how is it that we've also 20% up to 20% of our body composition is the mitochondria? And what have we brought into our world in the last 50 years? things that kill bacteria in, a, in longer than 50 years like endemic and like across the board talk about a pandemic yeah. of wiping it out oh, those gosh. little those little micro, those little mitochondria are like literally fighting for their life
1: yeah, it was interesting because they, you know we were just talking about recent events and i wrote an article about disease x Oosh. and you know oh. because they were talking about the next pandemic pandemic is a word it literally just means all people that's it Oosh. it has no reference to infectious disease or not exactly and so what you're talking about the pandemic of a unhealthy gut microbiome. Yeah, yeah. I left that one off. Yeah. But that would have been a good one. So (laughs) it's beautiful. Um, The best answer to cancer is never get it. Yeah. Beyond that, the best answer to cancer is the immune system. And I think that's a a nice tie in because Mm. the gut microbiome plays such an important connector to the immune system. And again, 2017, talking about immunotherapy, talking about the immune system, you were ahead of the time again in this book.
0: Well, gosh, it, not just me, but let's go back to Coley. Let's go back to Rudolf Steiner. Yeah. These were the original OG immunologists of their time.
1: But Coley was at kind of ostracized. Kind of, except I for know. the fact that his
0: therapy was utilized at Sloan-Kettering until the 1960s. And
1: then they dropped it, and then he kind of became the father of kind of modern-day you know, Yeah, oncology. and they give yeah. a they give a
0: Coley's award every year at Sloan-Kettering, and nobody even knows their own history.
1: Oh, my goodness. <laughs>
0: When I gotta walk through Sloan Kettering recently to go check out all their PCR labs. I mean, my husband was like salivating and there's like multiple PCR devices there. We're walking through and I see this beautiful thing in their lobby. Whole thing about coley.
1: Talk about a brilliant innovator yeah. um treating sarcomas and oh. other cancers by in by mimicking the designed beautiful. immune function beautiful. of a fever. Yeah. I mean, innovative, innovative. Right. Uh and and if we had only continued that work, and yeah. now you can see it being modeled in mistletoe, uh, modeled yeah. in hyperthermia, I, interleukin two, yeah. Uh, oh, and
0: how crazy! What have we been doing for the last also 50, 60 years? Suppressing, destroying the immune fever. System. Yeah, yeah.
1: Fever's the enemy. Yeah, is it not?
0: It's so crazy. I mean, so people. I mean, talk about. I could have been. I mean, if people knew what I was doing with my patient population when I was still in private practice, especially when I was a general family practice practitioner, I would tell. I would train my pa- my doctors, or excuse me, train my families because they were like little doctors. Your patients, your little people, your little humans, if they end up with a fever of one hundred and five point two for longer than a couple hours, then I want you to call me. But if they have if they get there, that's like we're celebrating that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If it gets higher than that for longer than that, of course, we need to intervene yes they're going to be uncomfortable here's all the tools in the toolbox to use to make them as comfortable as possible mostly you probably need to go take it like a shot of bourbon so you can deal with it because <laughs> it's really the parents angst not the kiddos that's the that's worst right. of it and then when they're like but what about the seizures i can't even tell you i've literally driven three times in an ambulance with a family as the kid was going to the hospital after a fever seizure and i'm driving there with them saying this is what's going to happen you're going to, get to the er they're going to do a checkup they're going to give them fluids they are going to send them home Nothing is happening. There's no sequela. Yeah. All is doing. And I said, what's happening to that kiddo is their body is shaking down the thermometer.
1: Yeah. That's all they're doing oh, with that's that. Beautiful, Isn't that great? That, that's actually beautiful. Yeah. And, I, hadn't um, thought, yeah. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's yeah. actually beautiful.
0: It is. And so as adults, we can't get there. Like we have to work really hard to get a fever that high. And when it goes that high in us, after all the years of suppression, usually we're really in trouble when a fever gets that big and out of control. But here's what's funny in the cancer world. We do that on purpose in a yeah. medically contained environment with like probes and whatnot in every orifice you can imagine to maintain homeostasis of the body and we're pumping them up with things like sodium bicarb which likely has some other medicinal qualities to it while we're keeping ph normalized in the body and we're using that as a tool and a very effective one that's utilized in every single hospital in china Hmm. as uh, not just for cancer but for all kinds of conditions in most of the hospitals in germany
1: yeah. No
0: right? And all these places where this is a normal part of medical system, it's not alternative one iota.
1: You know, two two things, and we'll move on to the last uh, last category, but there there was a study, and I'm going blank on the, the year, but it wasn't that long ago, maybe three years ago, where they actually looked at temperatures recorded over a series of about 100 years or yes. so. Yes. And so they actually had thermometers and documentation yes, yes from the Civil War, and they carried it in all the way up to modern times, about 2010, and they were able to chronicle a declining temperature of people. Yeah, And so that fits to what you're talking about there. And so not just a fever response there, but the actual basal temperature (laughs) is dropping. But then I've talked recently. We did a podcast. Uh, I don't think we've dropped it yet. But I I talked with Dr. Jason Williams down oh, in Cabo good. about it. But he the loves Tylenol. This. He loves to fever people. Yeah, the Tylenol. Tylenol Ugh. suppresses the immune system and completely, and wipes out all your
0: glutathione. And one And completely pill
1: swoop. negates it, if you're on immune checkpoint inhibitor mm-hmm. and you're taking Tylenol. You the just you just, will be, you, you just destroyed it. Right. You just destroyed the effect. Yep. Zero
0: effect. Same with antibiotics. Yeah. So yeah. Within it, six months, even that's the studies that we're coming out with that we were hearing that, that was presented at a big medical conference. It was at a couple of years ago of the two or three studies that came out in a very short period of time. And it was 2019, it was at SIO, Society of Integrative Oncology 2019 presenting at least three cases or three studies on the implications of taking an antibiotic within six months of an immune checkpoint inhibitor. You've basically all, you've basically negated the impact of that it's utility of that, which is pretty frightening. And then back to the, um, the fever piece and what you just described about the the general body temperature, that's what Dr. Adam Blanning, who's one of the co-authors on the mistletoe book, he teaches about that. And there's a whole chapter in that about the warming therapies and the history of this. So it goes into that study you're talking about and how we've lost this warmth. Yeah. And think about even what that means on an energetic level. Yeah. Enter- we've lost it. And you were talking about like how AI, there's talk about a loss of warmth there. Oh, right and and so many of these pieces here like we have we we've got to go back and what we use a lot of these therapies for like mistletoe in particular hyperthermia is to create a mantle of warmth which is about an immune reaction it's upregulating all kinds and modulating all kinds of cytokines and you know all these different um immune modulating
1: chemicals as, as we as the humans and the human experience become more isolated mm. is it any surprise that our temperatures drop.
0: Not a surprise at all.
1: So then let's close because again, this book has millions of nuggets. (laughs) And and it's relevant today and it's more supported, but metastasis because Mm. when you look at 90% causes of morbidity and mortality in cancer, it is the metastatic process, but it's only really hitting mainstream in patients and in -hmm. cancer that look, we must approach treatment to prevent the metastatic spread, because mm-hmm. what we're now starting to see in the literature, Dr. Nesha is that a lot of our conventional therapies, Ugh. they oh. actually set the stage for metastasis. You're right. And we've had so, more studies coming out on this. So too. we may have two, you know, one or two years of remission. But the trade off for that is now we've set the stage for it's everywhere. It's mutated. It doesn't respond. Yeah, it's it's to, resistant. And now there's not much to do. Yeah. Yeah. So mm. from the beginning, we have to focus on metastasis because is, yeah. I almost look at it this way. Metastatic process is what cancer does from day one. When it's yeah, growing well, it's, and it's yeah, invading, by the time you it's even doing know,
0: it. By the time you even know it's there, it's already metastasized. Yeah, yeah. So I don't care if someone's like a stage zero, stage one, a stage two, it's already metastasized. Right. Because the entire terrain, the entire environment, the entire soil is already tainted, to which is what allowed that to to go. And once it's big enough and loud enough to capture our attention, that means it's already on the move. It just hasn't clumped up enough in a a single space enough for you to know that it's already there. And so people get into this sort of complacency, or this, oh, the stage matters, the stage doesn't matter.
1: If you want to provoke fear, it does. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's a whole nother ball game. That's right. Hope over fear. Yeah. So, um, a book written in 2017, that not only is relevant to today, but has more evidence to support its relevance. And I almost feel like you could write an update to it just to further say, yeah, Yeah. I'm just gonna give myself a little pat on the back, on the shoulder because you were ahead of the time. But, you know, how can they find you? Yeah. On social media website. Yeah. Do you have a personal brand or where, where can they find more about you?
0: Sure. So they can find a lot more about me through Dr. Nasha, D-R-N-A-S-H-A dot com. Okay. But where you can see all the all the things that we're doing with this pain to purpose and life and learnings and the ongoing learnings of it all is through M T I H dot org, which stands for the Metabolic Terrain Institute of Health. Dot org, which is the nonprofit arm of our, our research, our education, our patient grants to help them afford things like this, eventually the hospital slash training ground, where we will help show people how to live healthy on an unhealthy planet and also help practitioners in every walk of life be able to come together and learn and teach collectively with each other and let that be the beginning of a, of a process of these taking seat, like seeding their way all over the globe of this type of of approach.
1: You continue to not just learn, but to act. Yeah. And so what you're doing, what you just mentioned there, is actually taking the action points from this book mm. and then replicating it. Yeah. You're building a legacy for a movement that's going to change the tip of the spear that is cancer treatment. Yeah. So Dr. Nasha Winters, thank you for joining us again. It is truly an honor to... For you to open up your home Thank to us. You mm-hmm. are the most gracious host. Thank you. A five-star Airbnb <laughs> and restaurant. Nice. They're not, but <laughs> if it was, it'd be a five-star. Love it. So what you've done gives hope. Thank you. It gives me hope. I know you give patients hope. And when we focus on cancer, it seems like all we have is fear. But what we need to do in the integrative, the natural, the holistic, cancer arena is we need to focus on hope because that's where healing potential begins and you're taking that teaching arm to give patients hope, give patients healing. Thank you again and remember what I always say, hope is literally just confidence in tomorrow in a future. Dr. nasha Winters and others gives that hope a real name. So remember, there's always hope. Hope it forward. I'm Dr. Nathan Goodyear of the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. You can find us on every downloadable aspect of social media, on podcasting, wherever you find podcasting. Check us out over at the drgoodyear.com personal brand website, rio-medical.com, where I'm the medical director. And of course, all social media is like Instagram, dr.goodyear. Mm-hmm. Dr. Goodyear signing off from the beautiful south of the border beach in Mexico.